you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, and genre-hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And he's one of the finest returning guests you could ask for, save those few times he abandons reason for madness. It's Brent Rivers. Hey everybody, what's going on? Super psyched to have you, man. Um, Noah... You want to tell people what we're doing today and why Brent Rivers has returned to the show? Return to the Brent? Um, <laughs> yes, we are going back to critically reappraise and decide the rewatch value for the Lord of the Rings films. Uh, mm. 20 years since the release of Fellowship of the Ring, uh, the movie that started it all. And you and I are both uh avowed fans of of these films we are not like tolkien or lore aficionados which is which is why we bring in brent today to ask a lot of big questions so thanks for being here man can we do like a kate blanchett style eight minute prologue chance and noah had begun a (laughs) podcast but then they were greedy and they tried to do lord of the rings but the podcast had a plan of its own the podcast wants to be bad. <laughs> the podcast betrayed them. Yeah. Listen, I, I would join this podcast with an intention to do good, but through me. <laughs> yeah, the only I feel like the main reason I feel good about this is the Star Wars episode we did a couple years ago somehow wasn't a disaster <laughs> because we like tried to come in with some defined takes and questions. So I've attempted to replicate that mm. here today. Um as much as possible. Um, maybe we could just talk about, like, in retrospect, where you think this kind of film franchise stands or what it means 20 years later before we jump into the into the movies themselves. Noah, do you have any feelings off the top of your head? No, I mean, for me, I feel like this definitely marks this interesting change in what spectacle movie making kind of looks like you know i think we're always sort of lamenting how it's this fine balance between what looks goofy and what looks cool when it comes to digital versus uh physical effects and i think this one you know i almost related it's like terminator 2 and you can kind of like see the technology finally arriving for these epic battles to take place but it's still learning or it's still using the tricks that, you know, make a movie like Braveheart or Gladiator. Like it's still kind of a, you know, spiritually in that space. Um, and then I think too, like I was kind of thinking like, you know, what, what, what was the, the special sauce for, for a franchise like this? And I really do think, and like one of the reasons I wanted to have Brent on, you know, and maybe we can talk about some of the, you know, the books versus movie comparisons. Uh, but I think it's like just such a rich literary text that kind of demands you throw a lot of creativity at it. It's not some like, oh, how can we make the Nutcracker Lord of the Rings? You know, it, like it is its own thing. And like even the 
these three movies leave out like large chunks of what are, you know, some pretty epic uh, underlying intellectual property. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that this movie for me, and especially when I saw it, too, it, it kind of like, I don't know. And I feel like Brett and I kind of became friends around like the time where these movies were coming out. You know, it kind of at least for me, solidified a movie fandom of like, this is what a movie should be. And I'm excited because it's a year later that like, oh man, number two and number three are coming out. Like, what are they going to do next? And I don't know, maybe that exists now, but I don't, I haven't felt that. I don't think like since this sort of came out into the world. But what's your relationship to it, Chance? Um, There were some of the movies I watched the most as a child. I There was a point in like sixth grade uh, where I like didn't have any friends and was walking to and back and forth from school because I just switched schools and I, I I try like had tried to have the first like forty minutes of fellowship dialogue memorized. Um, so like some real nutcase uh, stuff. It hit me at a sweet. Was this spot before or after well. you were wearing that train conductor's hat? <laughs> Both before and after. It was after when I was a baby and before when I was in college, um, <laughs> trying to bring it back. Um, I think that it stands at this really interesting um, kind of irreplicable point of franchise filmmaking where if you just look at like by the middle to end of the nineties, like Hollywood's idea of like what to do with series and franchises had really degraded itself. I made like a small list, not exhaustive and you could quibble with a lot of these, but just think, so they make these movies in 99. I got Batman Mission Impossible, Die Hard, Alien, Freddy, Jason, Hollywood, Rocky, uh, Halloween, excuse me, Rocky, Back to the Future, Jaws, Lethal Weapon, James Bond, Godfather Part 3 kind of starts off the decade. Just like their ideas about what to do with series just like decayed and decayed and decayed and got worse and worse and worse. So just the idea that you make the investment, um, New Line and Peter Jackson, to take this shit seriously, make them all at once get someone with a clear idea of how to adapt the text, um, just changed, I think, how people treated intellectual property forever, which is, um, as much as I think about Chris Nolan as sort of like the tone setter for like a lot of the franchise filmmaking we get today. Um, but then, of course, it's before um, the true machinery gets into motion, which is why I don't think something like Lord of the Rings would ever be replicated. I mean, Bob Shea was not acting like Kevin Feige acted um, as a steward of Gondor around the Marvel <laughs> franchise. They really put it in Peter Jackson's hands and let the creative people do what they wanted in this kind of small, somehow intimate, like in-house New Zealand way in Weta. Um, so it was, was sort of the first of something and also the end of something. I think you could even see that in the box office results. Like the, like if Star Wars is the the thing that kicks off trilogy consciousness forever, um, those movies got less popular as as they went. Even though, of course, Return of the Jedi is a huge deal. Lord of the Rings, you know, gambled correctly on picking up minting fandom in real time as each movie gets more and more popular toward the conclusion. So I think it stands alone. Um, Brent, I want to hear what you think about uh, adaptation specifically here. Part of the fascinating thing about these movies is in some ways, I think we see them as a kind of watershed series because 
everything after this is is kind of never the same, uh, mostly in terms of how people treat their audience uh, and how filmmakers are kind of trusting audiences to understand, to follow, to kind of keep track of things from movie to movie. And, um, you know, yes, there are definitely people who saw this movie who are like, this is slow, this is boring. And, you know, that, that critique was out there. Um, but I think a willingness to really just kind of sit in the pocket of the world that Tolkien created, you know, his, his greatest strength is as a world builder, um, you know, and this is a, a series that was essentially considered unfilmable for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, you know, not the least of which was story, you know, story would have fallen third under that behind the actual like production aspects of it. And the, the kind of the, the financial, you know, risk that a studio is taking. Um, it's so weird too, to even think about that financial risk in the context of it being 2021, you know, they, they spent $280 million to make all three of these movies and $220 million to make one Avengers movie, you know? So to, to think of that as a gamble, you know, now is, is, is kind of, um, bizarre, the scale of it all. But I think, you know, to that end, the willingness to trust an audience, the willingness to trust a production. And, you know, this is in a lot of ways, pretty sacred material. You know, Tolkien fans are, are pretty uh, intense, pretty devout. Tolkien himself, you know, did not see himself as an entertainer. He saw himself as a world builder. And so what we're looking at here is not somebody who's fascinated with commerce, but somebody who's fascinated with just kind of creating a space where we can have all these different characters interact and we can have all these kind of interesting questions about, you know, society and peace and hope and you know a lot of these kind of really big broad picture ideas that I think Peter Jackson really says okay let me let me treat this as a piece of material that that can and should be molded because if the movies read like a book then the movies aren't doing really what a movie ought to do and so I think uh, there's a lot of really clever filmmaking here a lot of really thoughtful organization but I mean honestly just the the, the fact that they filmed all three of these movies at once I think gives you know you can't really see the shimmer start to slip away the way you can, even in, like you said, Jedi is, a, is an amazing movie, but it is not Empire. It is not A New Hope, you know? And so I think in the same context, you know, you're seeing all three of these movies really of essentially a really similar caliber. You know, we don't see things kind of waste or, or draw away or, or kind of um, fall apart. So adaptation-wise, I think this is just super, super strong. Um, it goes in depth where it wants to go in depth, but also kind of glosses over things that if you if you don't have all of the lore and you're not interested in time Tom Bombadil and Goldberry, right? You're still going to be able to be like, cool, good guys, bad guys. Let's do this. There you go. I actually have a kind of a brain teaser that I, I think is fun to think about it before we jump in. I think that this franchise among so many, there's so many angles we could go with this. Um, but I just want to talk about its shifting relationship to like movie stardom and a surprising relationship. I want to know who do you guys think to the average American film goer in 2001 who is the biggest star, the most recognizable face going into Fellowship of the Ring? Jonathan Rhys Davies. Okay. I think if I think if it's recognizable star in two thousand one, it's Hugo Weaving. You know, at least he is Agent Smith. He is like you know the face of some other blockbuster, and and you can look at it and go like, oh, that's the guy from the Matrix. Right. But uh, you know, I, I I think I see where you're headed here in that like we ultimately have a movie that is not composed of star power, despite the fact that like we essentially have nine leads, um, you know, for, for a good chunk of these series. And that's pretty fascinating and like very contrary to how movies are made in 2021. Yeah. You have, you mean you have total unknowns when it comes to um, Orlando Bloom, you have character actors who are kind of coming on like Viggo Mortensen. You've got child actors like Sean Astin and, and Elijah Wood who are Rudy himself. Yeah, and the Goonies uh, was the other Sean Astin one I was thinking about. Um, I don't think had anyone heard of Billy Boyd or Dominic Monaghan before this. 
you could mount an argument that maybe the most recognizable face could be Liv Tyler uh, coming out of like that thing you do in Empire Records and Armageddon, like in a in an American pop culture sense. Certainly in a global art scene, it would be Ian McKellen. Um, uh, but yeah, that's okay. So then, next one. Who do you think? gets the most immediate star boost from the franchise. I think there's only one Orlando Bloom. to this. Yes. Well, I think the greatest trick the, the devil ever pulled was presenting both Legolas and Will Turner like in such quick succession as to think that Orlando Bloom has acting ability. But, <laughs> and, but I mean, the rest of his career will prove that he does not. Well, and it's more than just those two. You got Troy in 04 and Kingdom of Heaven in 05. Like, we were really going all in on right. anything with Orlando Bloom and a sword. Where does Elizabeth Town? 05, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then I think in the long term, it's even more unlikely and strange. I think in the long term, it's Kate Blanchett and Andy Serkis are the people who 20 years later, I think, are have ex- grown their careers. And if you want to look draw a straight line from Lord of the Rings to their success today, it's probably Andy Serkis. I mean, Kate Blanchett has obviously been in a million other great movies. Andy Serkis... from an artistry perspective. Yeah, Andy Serkis, too, I would say, was the most unlikely kind of, like, glow-up, so to speak. Yeah. Like, the going from <laughs> Smeagol uh, and the prologue to uh, episode three here and then seeing like how muscular and kind of like badass he is in Black Panther is unbelievable. When you see, yeah, Smeagol choking Diagol to death, do you think that, the, that guy there, the choker, he's going to direct Venom, let there be carnage? <laughs> I do think though there's, a, there's definitely like, I mean, everybody gets a little boost, um, but I think Elijah Wood gets this boost of like, I'm done now. Like anything I do here is gravy on top of this. So doing stuff like Wilfred or, or you know, kind of more weird projects or something like um, everything is illuminated, you know, like he's kind of able to do those things because he not only was a child star, but also can like check this box and be like, yes, I'm also an adult star too. Now I can do whatever yeah. I want. We should say too, just amazing to think that, um, you know, Peter Jackson kind of landed himself among the James Camerons and Spielbergs of the world considering um, what he had done before this. I mean, the uh, the movie... Have you guys seen The Frighteners with Michael J. Fox? Sure have. This, I mean, Pretty that's weird. sort of like his... Pretty bad. It's not a great film. It's fun, and but the effects are interesting and that's sort of like his um, his make good to, to do this... Um, visuals wise which is fascinating but before that i mean heavenly creatures is a great movie but he'd worked a lot in the just like pretty distasteful um things like meet the feebles i don't know if you guys have ever experienced with like old jackson but it's like some of the weirdest most intentionally offensive stuff you could possibly watch um and dead alive is pretty pretty gory and insane um so yeah it's it's he just kind of He's calling his own shot here, and for it to come up right, and the way he said it would is just one of the all-timers. Yeah, and I think, you know, he ultimately ends up carrying New Zealand on his back as well. You know, there's a, a huge film industry there now, largely because of Peter Jackson and Way to Workshop and, and, and what he and Fran Walsh have kind of been able to, to build for that space. So, uh, yeah, definitely, you know, to, to borrow Noah's term, definitely a glow-up for uh, for Sir Peter uh, in, this, in this series. And I would have said... You know, I'd never even kind of come close to touching those heights again. But 
this Beatles documentary. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's really goddamn good. And his like his mastery of like large scale management of uh, payoffs and observations and how to make something that could be six hundred hours, eight hours is he still got it in terms of in terms of those skills. How are the battle sequences? Was he able to recreate them realistically? Verbally, they are. Uh, yeah, they're quite sharp. I hear it's just a lot of sitting around and smoking, which is a reason I would watch it. It's yeah, you should. Um, all right, should we uh, should we begin Fellowship of the Ring? A meek hobbit from the Shire and eight companions set out on a journey to destroy the powerful One Ring and save Middle Earth from the Dark Lord Sauron. Legend tells of a ring created by an ancient evil that gave its wearer the power to enslave the world. Believed lost for centuries, it has now been found. Is it secret? Is it safe? This is the One Ring, forged by the Dark Lord Sauron. Sauron needs only this ring to cover all the lands of a second darkness. He's seeking it. Seeking it all. His thought is bent on it. No one knows it's here, do they? Do they, Gandalf? I was trying to watch for things I hadn't noticed before. And one of the things that hit me about the way fellowship is constructed is it would be all too easy to kind of like cut all over middle earth and like meet different characters at different times to which you'd be like, what the hell is happening? And it's so smart to keep it in the hobbits perspective. Like it keeps the world very, very, very small. Um, And and untouched and you get this beauty of the Shire that they're always all talking about going back to. It's like the thing that they're fighting for, the thing that they're hoping, hoping to save where at the same time is you just get these like little nuggets of like the wraiths leaving Mordor, torturing Gollum or uh, Gandalf doing his, uh, going to the stacks to read about, what was that thing about a Sildor in that ring that one time? <laughs> is that this thing? Um, I love the way it's the perspective. Um, they sort of the same forced perspective that classical filmmaking trick that makes Gandalf look huge in the house. That's also what Peter Jackson's doing with the whole movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that there's a real um, love for hobbits in this world um, and in a way that like is definitely part of the book, but is more part of the film. I think the idea that like we are meant to feel ourselves as hobbits as we kind of come to greet these new, strange, wondrous, frightening experiences, um, you know, gives us a place to go. You know, if we, if we start in Gondor and we're like, yeah, by the way, we've been under siege for 30 years. It's like, great. Can't wait to see more siege, you know? Um, so I think that, that, that giving us our uh, Hobbit characters gives us somebody to really root for, gives us a real kind of sense of, of what matters and, um, you know, suggest that like this state of evil and shadow is, uh, 
kind of not already the starting point, right? That that's something that's growing into this film, that, that Sauron as a threat is increasing, you know, so I think uh, that that opening piece is great. From an adaptation piece, that's that's just bananas. I remember seeing this movie for the first time and being like, this is so good, I need to read the rest of these books before the next movie comes out, and starting Fellowship and being like, what the hell is happening? I, they don't leave the Shire for 140 pages. I mean, it's like, there's so much that happens there that like, you know, as a, in 2001, I was like, this guy doesn't know how to tell a story. And now in like, you know, 2021 it's like oh no like this is just world building and just sitting in it and like you know just taking the time to just give us a sense of what it is to be a hobbit and what it is to live as a as a simple person in middle earth before things start to get complicated i think jackson's really smart with you know not only figuring out how to outdo himself scene to scene but also how myths are built and like the stories that are kind of holding this society together. Uh, you know, like you chance, I, I sort of went in looking for things I hadn't noticed before. And what I think is so brilliant about fellowship is that like, it begins with this kind of goofy Kate Blanchett, like these are the important facts you must know to follow this story. <laughs> but then it subverts that because like that refrain, that moment, that shared history and the actual truth behind what happened to the ring and like who actually was holding it and the means by which they got the ring is deeply important to understanding the characters and the dangers of the ring. And so they keep kind of returning to like every half an hour, we kind of see the seal door thing a little bit clearer. Like originally it was like, Oh, why didn't he destroy it originally? Oh, he just is wearing it on a necklace. Cool. And then he dies. But you like, as the movie goes, you kind of like filling in these little pieces of, Oh, the, the larger myth, that I've been telling myself that humans are good and they triumphed over this dark force. Well, like the reason Sauron's still here is like kind of cause the humans couldn't deal with it the first go around. Yeah. That, and the, the sense of it being sort of too like a Imperial or world war one era allegory, which I think you got to talk about when you talk about the books is um, they all kind of want to pretend that the original sin didn't happen and wherever you want to place that in real life human history you i mean take your pick there it's a paradox but there are many original sins um but then and it sort of forces them all into like these isolationist principles and then but also the thing i love is that then everywhere they go pretty much in every movie where they think like well this is this is where the good folks live it's either uh moria which is a hellhole um or uh Rohan, which has been taken over by Soromon, uh, mentally speaking, or or Denethor, just like decaying on the throne. Like everywhere you go in this world where they're supposed to be friends, it's it's poisoned and stagnant. Well, that's what I was texting you about, Brent. Is the idea that I guess in previous watches I was so sort of fascinated and you know awestruck by the visuals of it that I I like didn't kind of notice the broader aesthetic choice and that this is I mean this is what you're talking about chance but the idea that we're seeing this like once prominent world at the end of its its existence like people are just like fighting over what's left and there's something like very kind of sad about that or, or bittersweet kind of pulling through the whole story of like this is the fourth age of men but it's kind of like you know, we've gotten so far from like what was cool and when the, you know, the ingenuity or the wherewithal to build these outrageous sculptures and these outrageous buildings that are now crumbling. Like, when was that and when are we now? 
It is in men that we misplace our hope. Men? Men are weak. The race of men is failing. The blood of Numenor is all but spent. Its pride and dignity forgotten. It is because of men the ring survives. I was there, Gandalf. I was there 3,000 years ago. I mean, I think it would be silly to mount an argument, not that you were doing this, but for someone to be like, oh, I like Fellowship because it's sort of like this intimate, lo-fi little first one. <laughs> That's what Brent's going to say in about 10 minutes. It's not like that, but it is a movie of hunting, you know, a movie of hunting parties. Like you have the Fellowship, which is a bunch of like, what, nine badasses, and then nothing is uh, more uh, kinetic and terrifying and invigorating than the like the 60 orakai who are set upon them at Amon Hen, which I, I just love as a, as a final. It might be my f- favorite bit of action in the whole, in the whole franchise, to be honest. Um, well, that's yeah. the building too between the three films is like right. this one ends, they all end with battles, but of just like, like a, like the, uh, you know, constantly exponentially growing levels of, of intensity. One well, and the, the battle is so nice, nice is the wrong word for it, but so, so satisfying at the end of Fellowship because it really is testing the Fellowship. You know, the, those battles that we see at the end of Two Towers or the end of Return of the King are kind of testing, like, the world. Right. You know, they get almost a little bit too grand. And so, you know, I do kind of like the intimacy and kind of nice smallness of Fellowship. Um, in, in, no, I'm just, in, but I do, <laughs> I do like the way that they are uh, ultimately still able to, like, really bring that down to, like, Aragorn versus Lurts. You know, like, it really is a kind of one-on-one battle at the end of that movie and you know there's so much tension with our other characters that we have consequences obviously for Merry and Pippin being gone the death of Boromir is so I mean like even 20 years later is like I think one of the the more tender scenes of the entire trilogy um, it's John Bean's best acting in, in the whole movie um, you know and so I, I think there's a lot that resolves at that point um, and, and it's just fascinating that that's not marketed right that's not like wrapped up in the like ah because we have the battle of yavin because we're building up to this third act here you know i think it just it feels very natural because there's still so much that we know is going to follow it as a consequence we're all men in our 30s um who saw these movies as kids do you feel like you have to reach a certain age to realize that boromir is the most interesting character of the first movie (laughs) you don't simply turn 30 (laughs) Unfortunately, you do. Um, one does not simply turn thirty. One, one does. Three have. Um, but yeah, no. I, I as a kid, of course, you kind of you go through being like wowed by Legolas um, or Aragorn or something like that. And I, I think as as an adult watching these movies, and I like what you said, Brent, about the the testing of the fellowship. A lot of the tests over the course of the entire trilogy are are daunting and massive, but. They're sort of like, you can't wrap your head around them, and yet you know they'll be passed, right? Aragorn is not a character who changes. The hobbits suffer greatly on the way to what is an obvious conclusion in the end. But Boromir, I mean, is someone riddled with conflict, who, in in the way Aragorn never changes, the fact that Boromir does, in the end, is probably the most um, interesting or um, heartstring-pulling character development, I think, in any of the movies. 
Hmm. I think it's some of the most acting that's really happening, you know, where they really are, you know, being different uh, than they were before. You know, obviously Gandalf has, has different forms and different appearances. And, you know, Aragorn does, I think, you know, I think he changes a little bit in that he comes to that point where he accepts his responsibility as king and, and things like that. But, you know, nothing compared to the kind of inner turmoil that we're seeing with Boromir. I think that's that's next level. And then by the time we get to the second and third movie where we see more of those family dynamics, I, I think we really do just get a sense that, like, it was harder to be Boromir than it first appears in that first movie. Um, which I, again, I also think is, is really the kind of storytelling we see more in television than we really see in film. Um, and so the fact that they're able to kind of revisit a character who's already passed and make you think differently about it, you know, I think that's a, that's a strength of Jackson. That's a strength of his, um, kind of arrangement of, of the storytelling and, and, you know, his, his ability to adapt this text so that, you know, stuff that Tolkien is mentioning in the appendices of Return of the King is actually going to be like really specifically placed right in the middle of the two towers film and so on and so forth. So I think there's that, that kind of, um, balanced storytelling that, that Boromir does get because of that, that, the kind of the battling of good and evil happening inside him. It is interesting to kind of look at these characters in the context of like Boromir, we see an actual sort of desire and then change. But for a lot of the people, especially involved with the actual fellowship itself, there isn't like a lot of, I want this and these are the tactics I'm using to, to, to get it more than like world must be saved. And here we go. And now, you know, I mean, most of the two towers is just these three characters running sort of blindly without being exhausted to like chase after a plot point, not a desire. Mostly they have to convince and or not convince supporting characters. Um, but yeah, I, and Brent, I, I want, yeah, I want you to speak to this, but I, I think there, there's something like kind of uber classical and not modern about this franchise's like understanding of character development. Like the good characters are good and they are wholesome and they are good. But I also wanted to ask you like, Surely there is more to Frodo's internal character development than we see through the last two movies. So it's interesting, right? Because, you know, the idea that you, you consider it kind of um, pre-modern, right, was it was a deliberate intention of Tolkien, right? He was a philologist, he studied language, and deliberately in his text tries not to use any word that did not exist in the kind of common English lexicon before 1600, right? Uh, obviously, he's still making up words and things like that. But even like, you know, the fact that these characters are smoking tobacco out of their pipes, but he's going to say pipe weed because tobacco sounds like such a, a product of industry and a product of like a modern space. So, you know, I think modernity is something that kind of really is, is fascinating in the context of Lord of the Rings. But I think in terms of character development, you know, when we think about a modern character who is, you know, even someone who is, is, is not a fantasy character, but any kind of protagonist, you know, we're looking for that, those wants, those desires, that kind of internal struggle. But it really does, um, I think, kind of zoom out in a lot of ways for that, right? We don't really see, you know, we see that happen in small scenes and in small moments. Chance, you mentioned that they're often trying to convince supporting characters. And I think there is where we see wants and especially tactics come into play, you know, characters kind of using different skills and traits and kind of playing on characters' uh, uh, fears and anxieties there. But, you know, the, the internal struggle of Frodo in the text is really manifest externally as much as it is internally. And we see that in the movies, you know, by the time we get to Return of the King, when his makeup is just, I mean, he's decrepit, he's hes gaunt, he's, he's pallid, you know, all those awful kind of images that we have of him. Um, so I, I, his his struggle internally is exactly what we're seeing on the external. And I think that is a very kind of Tolkien idea that, that your external 
ugliness is a product of internal turmoil and internal evil and, and those things kind of at odds. And that to me is a very kind of um, classical idea, a kind of romantic idea, you know, something that very much is um, pre 20th century, you know, it is not very much something that we would anticipate with, oh, you're, you're part of the class of post-World War One writers. How did this affect you? You know, this is, this is not a lost generation writer, right? This is somebody who's very much in a, uh, hearkening back to a previous time. You, you know, he was obsessed with fairy tales. He was a professor of, of old English and, and, uh, you know, medieval literature and things like that. So he definitely is, I think, pulling on a lot of those ideas of, of the self and of good and evil and, and those kind of thematic ideas. God, I'm glad you're here. Well done. <laughs> Um, Howard Shore, we down? I, I don't really have anything uh, to say yes. about this other than just how the fact, other than just kind of wondering like what got into him. I mean, like <laughs> good compo good composing career. I mean, Cronenberg collaborator did Silence of the Lambs, but I I would I would say that if you take Lord of the Rings away, he's kind of like a tier two dude. Is he's not John Williams? He's not Marconi? He's not Bernard Herrmann? And then he composes. What a hundred and eighty-five light motifs, like for characters and situations, like beating out Star Wars, and just like twelve of them that you could hum right yes. now and forever. That's what I was gonna like, say. How does one do that? There's, there's so many. Like this is the move, the last movie that I can remember that I can not only sing the theme to, and not just like the bad guy theme, but also like go into the Shire theme, Everyone's. and like entering uh, um, the Minas Tirith theme, and like. You know, the whole the whole thing, whereas like, you know, even Star Wars, you can only do like Star Wars and then like the Emperor's theme. I can do Tatooine's Twin Sons if you want. I could probably do the uh, Cantina show. Band if a uh, gun to my head. I could do I could do that one, too. <laughs> there you go. There we go. We're covered. We're covered. Um, let it be known. Um, but yeah, no, he, he has a specific theme. For, he has a creature theme for like the cave troll and Shelob. He has a specific like um, kind of dissonant escalation thing that is bad to hum but i can cut it in right here audio wise like i don't know how you do that uh and it's just amazing In so many ways, it's really doing the work of the map at the beginning of the story, you know, because we have so much culture change, country change, and instead of just like kind of constantly being like, oh, by the way, this is Rohan, here's what they do here, this is what you need to know about these people, we just get one gorgeous violin kind of like sound, I mean, it's what, like five bars, and all of a sudden we're just like weeping at the thought of this like lost, decrepit civilization, you know, and I think the the ability to use music as a shorthand for for cultures, for for different classes of people, for, for you know, obviously for action sequences and things like that as well, but it, it becomes so satisfying and so you know, heartbreaking, you know, you hear that fellowship theme, um, you know, that one last time in the, in the Mines of Moria, and then we don't ever hear it all the way through again, you know, we'll hear it minor, we'll hear pieces of it, um, but that, that, that is just so powerful to be like, that's right, this is our last moment together with the fellowship, and, and, you know, it, I've heard people who say actually that the music is kind of gilding the lily a little bit, and that it's maybe a little bit too much, but I, I really think that's wrong. The, the kind of the master, vi definitely wrong, um, but that's also like, you know, the kind of master vision of like, what Jackson's trying to do, right? He's trying to make this as epic and full and complete a world as possible. And I think that comes down to, to music. And, and I agree, Howard Shore, this is a, a huge improvement over his work in Big, um, definitely, you know, as a, as, a, as a composer. 
Tolkien, music is such a, an important part of storytelling and, and world building and things like that. You know, I mean, there's, you know, in, in the book, when they get to Rivendell, Bilbo's like, let me sing you a song. And then there's like eight pages of him going through like all the history of the elves and all this kind of stuff. But it's in verse because that's what Tolkien loved, you know? So I think the, 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 epic qualities of the Howard Shore music makes it feel less jarring when all of a sudden like Viggo Mortensen is like just gonna hum a tune real quick and you know uh, all of a sudden he's being crowned king and yeah actually you, you do need to sing to celebrate that occasion you know I think it it justifies that as part of this world where I go yeah okay yeah that's that's what you do when you're a king because you have Howard Shore making music and that makes sense there's so many big things to talk about. Is there anything else fellowship specific you guys want to discuss? So I'm curious to hear what you guys um, think about this in terms of the comic relief of this movie. So I think a lot of that falls onto Merry and Pippin um, as our kind of like mischievous hobbits. Um, but I, I wonder too, like how much of that really like holds up. I, you know, obviously this movie needs some degree of levity because it is so serious so often. Um, you know, and I, I think, you know, um, Billy Boyd and Dominic Monaghan do, you know, a serviceable job in those roles. Um, but one of the critiques that I often hear is that they do kind of clown those characters up. And the same thing will come, you know, in Two Towers with Gimli. But I, I wonder what you guys think of the comic relief in, in Fellowship in particular. Um, do those two justify their roles not just in the fellowship but like in the movie as a whole do you find them distracting where do you kind of land on on mary and pippin and and any of the kind of comedic bits of this movie I think that uh, the uh, Marion Pippin, specifically Billy Boyd's performance, have this kind of irrepressible whimsy that's important to see the hobbits maintain and i I like that the movie doesn't have a lot of um doesn't have a lot of like snarky humor. I really like the the beat that Billy Boyd gets to subvert when the fellowship music is blaring and he goes, so where are we going? <laughs> um, I think that, I think the Gimli stuff gets worse. I even like the way it's placed. He's just like burping in the middle of other people's <laughs> speeches, which is like this, uh, who, who like put the cobbled this scene together. I think the Pippin stuff is much sharper. So I like it. Chance, you call this very much like a kind of a, pre-modern text um and, and i know we're going to talk a little bit about women um but i also think like you know tolkien himself very much was resistant to the idea of allegory and he hated the notion that anyone would see any of his stories as allegorical for something else he thought they should be able to stand on their own two feet and that he's building a world and all this kind of stuff um but obviously you know it is a little bit um challenging right that like in today like that if, part of the reason we couldn't make this movie today right you know in, in terms of the production um also i think has a lot to do with the casting and the breakdown of of people and ideas that i think um you know this is a pro king trilogy um and I, I don't think we really like make movies like that now so i think the fact that the humor itself is like not as self-conscious um in some ways gives that a pass but i think in some ways maybe kind of dodges some of the the issues that we're kind of looking for. I, I don't know. Do these things bother you when you watch this movie or is it so popcorn escapism that it's like uh, you really are leaving that world behind and you're not as interested in, you know, the implications of, of what character design or, or plot piece, you know, means for our, a contemporary audience. Uh, would that I could uh, dissociate myself from the, the weight of the modern audience when watching a film. <laughs> Have you never heard the podcast before? Uh, <laughs> These goggles are 21 going into 22. Oh, my God. Um, um, no, but I, to your point, like I think it's going to be so interesting what Amazon decides to do with this Lord of the Rings series that they're making. Like I think... I was just looking at the cast list, and there are way more people of color, as you would hope. And women, yeah. 
Yeah. And I think too, like some of it's a like a prequel. But yeah, I, I agree with you, Brent, that it is there are some things about these films that are kind of they're kind of funny in that early two thousands, like, huh, kind of way. Like I think the the like th- this movie would not have survived it, it both like kind of bred a fandom that like we're still dealing with in terms of movie franchises but it also is not a movie that if introduced now could survive the internet we'll see did i ever told you guys that when my when my mom read these books to my sister and i aloud when we were little kids and um she said that uh Mary was a woman hobbit and I didn't realize it was a guy until I got into the theater in 2001. <laughs> she, she, she made it more of a feminist text uh, by reading it aloud to two blind children. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't have a, because there's such things, artifacts that I grew up with. Like it, it, it doesn't like bother me. I, I think when you have a, a, like a big Amazon thing coming, you're just like, well, I hope they'll do it differently next time. Um, but yeah, the the only part where I found myself like making fun of it was when, you know, they're doing kind of their uh, army number baiting. It's like there's 10,000 of them and only 300 of us. And you, a hundred able-bodied women who apparently know how to use swords, get in the caves. Like, you know, they say over and over again they need every sword possible. And, and AMR is like, uh, yeah, I'll be. Yeah, we'd rather see the end of our civilization than these these women fight alongside us. Come on. So, yeah, that and that's traditional in just a funny way where, like, the stakes of the story are clashing against what you're watching. Hmm. Um, I, I do. I do want to just talk briefly about Ian McKellen. I know we mentioned him as kind of like a like a star, um, and and yeah. I think he's he's you know really uh, a central figure, obviously, in all three of these movies. I think his performance in Fellowship is just extraordinary. Uh, I think like his ability to like bring, you know. What, what could easily have become like a very affected Shakespearean role. Instead, I think he just like uses his familiarity with verse and acting through verse to make all of that feel so natural. Um, you know, e- even some of those lines that again could read so archaic, in fact, just like feel like the kinds of things that somebody who's thousands of years old would just say, you know, and I think his ability to be like playful and, and charming with hobbits, but then also like serious and, and, um, earnest, you know, really with, with Saruman and with Theoden and, and throughout the whole rest of the series. But I think especially in that first movie, I think you see so much range from him. Um, it, it does not surprise me that he received a, an Oscar nomination for this movie. I don't think he did for two or three. Um, but I think, I think in the first one, he is really putting on his best acting performance. Yeah. The physical performance too, like, especially the, you know, hopping through the mines and then the, you shall not pass. Like, He's got some old man strength. He's got some gas left in the tank. And I mean, he's going to need it for the next two movies. <laughs> I just think the script in Fellowship is very finely tuned as well. I, I was just struck by the line when he, Gandalf, takes the eagle off the top of Isengard to get out of there. Like That could so easily be like a cheesy moment of like, uh, don't forget, I'm good. See you later. But instead, he is continuing to make his argument against Soromon about the way the world works. He says there's only one Lord of the Rings and he does not share power. He, you know, the, 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 the lines that are moving the, the plot forward in that moment are still like telling you a lot. It's very well written and I agree the performance is at its strongest here. Um, yeah. Why don't we tell people how we rate movies on Be Real? 
and then we'll rate The Fellowship of the Ring. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality, and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered unfortunately include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master. Got all that? Time for a rating. Now, I want to throw out an idea to you guys, if it's not too controversial, for the rating of these three films. I think it's 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 obvious that they're all, by the larger system, good goods. So I I would – I feel like I can rate them, however, in the other Lord of the Rings movies, just against each other, uh, still within the rating system. Right. So when I call Fellowship of the Ring good bad, what I I don't mean that it is a larger film ecosystem good bad. It is obviously a good good, but just compared to the other two, I think this one is I don't know, like the least like and for, for obvious reasons, it's 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 where they are at the beginning of this story, but like the spectacle of it is the least entertaining of the three because it just doesn't have the benefit of it and then it's also i feel like it is more in that like children's film entry point into this story kind of space uh, where the other two really kind of get to the point i disagree with all of that <laughs> i think it's I, it's my favorite of the three um, it's your and i think the best of the three. Of the three. I think Brent, you're gonna say this too aren't you you sure am it's the best one the character work is the strongest it has the most forward momentum it is the most brilliantly tuned into the two hour 59 minute box i mean there's not one single thing that's that's wasted in fellowship of the ring um and you you have the the style of like hand-to-hand combat he figures out like is at, at its best here where i mean we can talk about this more later if you want or maybe i'll say it now because we're going to talk about big armies the thing of really really quick cuts around like gritty like stabs and body blows into like a quick slow motion then sort of operatic movement um is at its best in amen hand as it is like the entire um of the of the three um yeah i disagree with all that it's a it's a good good yeah, I, I'm right there with you, Chance. I, I think it is by far the most watchable of these movies. You know? Totally. So, the, so, so, you know, and I, I almost could understand, um, you know, again, only relating it compared to these other movies. I, I do agree with you, Noah. These are these are clear good goods in the in the greater Be Real, you know, universe here. Um, but I think comparing them to one another, you know, I, I think you actually could ding it a little bit on technical quality, not because I think it is bad, but because it is so much more... Um, it's less intricate. You know, we stay with, there There aren't deviations of story. We aren't following four and three different threads. You know, it really is unified. To me, I think that's the strength of the movie. And, and part of what makes it so watchable is that like, 
we don't have to like stop with one group and see where somebody else is going. You know, we don't have to kind of time those climaxes so that all of that's happening together. Um, instead, we do just get kind of one singular story and we lose people along the way, but that that singular story is what makes the the, the kind of narrative so, so strong. Um, I also think just from a, an enjoyment perspective, I think The Shire is some of the most fantastical some of the most joyous fantasy in this entire series and again it's 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 about a war i get that it's not all supposed to be joyous but i think that um having that is so much um richer it makes the combat so much richer i think that the, just the the kind of the scope that they go through i think frodo and sam's development in this movie is so tight uh that that moment where he pulls him out of the water you know and, and is like you know literally willing to drown to go and try and help him his friend you know i think that's that's such an earned growth from where they start this movie so i i for me this is easily a good good um it is it is my favorite of the three um you know even if you break it down not just like looking at the whole movie at once but just like trying to break the movie into six discs as the as the blu-rays are set up um, both of these discs are still my top two of, of the entire series. As we move into Two Towers and what I'm realizing is easily going to be the longest episode of Be Real that we've <laughs> ever recorded. <laughs> Let's talk about... Brent, do you feel like the extended versions... Are you a fan of the extended ones? Yeah, if, to me, the extendeds are definitive. Um, you know, I, I do um, okay. I, I do appreciate the theatrical release. You know, that certainly was what, what hooked me. But I'm also at a point, too, where when I watch these movies, I'm less interested in pacing. I'm not as interested in, like, ah, this scene is superfluous it's like yeah i know that's that's why I, all of this is superfluous I don't, I don't need to watch any of these movies anymore I, I know the lines i know what's happening you know and so to me i would always rather sit in that um there are definitely some scenes where it's like and in two towers i think especially it's like okay do i do i need to watch like mary and pippin argue about like who's really taller because they're drinking the end draft you know it's like <laughs> yes i need to see that because i'm like a big giant loser but like no i i understand why like people didn't walk out of the boot you know why, why that didn't make a theatrical cut that all makes sense to me so um but it is definitely my preferred method of watching um i you know uh, when noah told me that this is what we were doing he did say that they were specifically not the extended versions i still watch the extended versions i just made sure to note which scenes were not going to be in well then your opinions are tainted <laughs> of course they are yeah this is where i slowly walk backward to camp noah because the theatrical because <laughs> movies are the religion here not lord of the rings we, that's fair that's um, fair things that chance cannot abide uh extended cuts of movies and the international box office lord of the rings did quite well in both respects but i refuse to acknowledge it's amazing um, you even like this movie Does an elf, a man, and a dwarf have in the Ritter Mark? Speak quickly! We track a band of Urukai westward across the plain. They've taken two of our friends captive. Look for your friends, but do not trust to hope that has forsaken these lands. We're lost. I don't think Gandalf meant for us to come this way. He didn't mean for a lot of things to happen, Sam. I come back to you now, at the turn of the tide. Saruman's forces have begun their attack. He is using Saruman 
to destroy your people. They were unarmed. They had no warning. This is but a taste of the terror that Saruman will unleash. You must fight. I will not risk open war. Open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. A new power is rising. Well, this is, this is from 2002, the following December. Uh... The two towers, while Frodo and Sam edge closer to Mordor with the help of Shifty Gollum, the Divided Fellowship makes a stand against Sauron's new ally, Saruman, and his hordes of Isengard. That's it. That's the whole thing. Let me ask you, you what do I feel about what? No, don't you think that Isengard is kind of the original Ick Pit? Oh, when I yeah, when I first saw the people who live under the stairs, I was like, Peter Jackson's gonna see this and he's gonna he's gonna turn it into Isengard. He's gonna make some mud orcs in here. He's gonna make some mud orcs. I'm still sort of unclear about how the orcs are actually made. Brent tried to tell me. Come on. They're like do, do you do you really wanna know? No, I don't really wanna know. My question is this on a storytelling level. If you are an author trying to keep straight a cast of thousands of characters, for what reason would you name two of the bad guys Sauron and Saruman? It's one is the it's Sauron, but he's a man. It's the Sauron man. What what could be simpler? It's like who am I writing about? Am I writing about the Sauron or the Sauron man who I've named? Saruman. Any rational person would probably start with Andy Serkis, but uh, I want to start with Brad Dourif, whose performance as Grimma Wormtongue. Late uh, is I've the hour. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. It's um, incredible, and I've I've been really enjoying him in a our Deadwood rewatch recently as the Doctor in the camp, who's great, and he's just so vile in this movie <laughs> and yet um the single tear that he cries upon seeing the hordes of isengard seems like pretty heartfelt he, he is truly awestruck and i also love believer. how they um they play there's a lot of like interesting kind of audio voice work in this movie um they definitely like put a bunch of interesting reverb on grimma's voice as he starts to talk to eowyn which i think is more in line with Two Towers, the novel, where he there is like an actual like mysticism, hypnotic quality to to how he communicates with people. But between that and then the the split Lee McKellen audio, where they're not sure who the White Wizard is, some very crafty choices there. Respond to any of this that you guys want. I think Brad Dourif is excellent in this, and and it really plays on like the fact that he is like not just like nasty and gross, but like like literally pathetic, you know. And I, I think yeah. a lot of that is setting up the the relationship with Gollum and Frodo. So you know that's a mm. I think some really interesting storytelling here to use those splitting threads to actually kind of comment and set up for one another. You know, we need to believe that Frodo feels bad enough for Gollum to not kill him, you know. And I think we we see bits of that happen with. Grima uh, with Wormtongue and 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 the fact that Theoden does go to kill him and that Aragorn is the one who steps in and says, "Hey, hold on, don't kill him. Enough blood has been spilled on his account." You know, I, I think is um, it, it kind of plays into some of the larger issues of this movie about like 
who can be helped, who can be saved. Um, you know, these are the kinds of questions you need to ask in the second of three films where our protagonist may very well lose not just his life, but all of the, the parts of him that make him Frodo uh, over the course of this quest, you know? And so I think setting up Grima, yeah, introduces new characters, new power dynamics, a new world of Rohan and, and kingship and things like that. But I also think there's a lot of really compelling um, kind of thematic ideas coming behind Grima. You know, obviously what he's doing is bad, what he's doing is wrong, um, but the way that his kind of misery is able to feast on and, and just profligate in other people's misery, I, I think is so effective in, in character building. And, and his performance is excellent. He's, he's just, he's so, he does a lot with not a lot of screen time. Noah, you want to talk about Bernard Hill. Oh, I want to spend this whole podcast <laughs> talking about Bernard Hill. Uh, Captain Smith uh, in the flesh. Um, I think he is a bit of a ham. Oh, in totally. <laughs> Just the way, but I think the he, character you know, is more of a ham than I realized too. Sure, like he's constantly grandstanding, like especially in the third film where he's like, yeah. "Oh yeah, I'm, I, I'm definitely riding for uh, for Gondor," and then he's like, "Well, Gondor didn't come to Helm's Deep, so like yeah. fuck them," and then he sees one more moment of glory, and he's just like, "Yeah, we're going to die. Let's do this." Yes. The horn of Helm Hammerhand shall sound in the deep one last time. Yes! Hey, here's my question for you. Can you identify the first scene that Bernard Hill uh, films when they are uh, filming this movie? It is the one where his accent is most egregious and not present in any of the rest of the scenes. <laughs> No. Is it when they go back to Helm's Deep and he lays on the many lives? That we one? We for it with many lives. <laughs> yeah. First day uh, filming. And they pull it back from there. That line is always that stood out. Is pretty incredible. Thank First you day on set. Trip. Give him a break. Give him a break. Let me ask you this in a larger cultural way. Is 2002 slash Bernard Hill the sort of apex of the Mark McGuire beard? Like, that's as kind of as good as wow. he gets, right? Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, Brent's dad didn't get the memo until, what, 2018? He's still leaning in. You know, he's, he's... My Brent's dad's not here to talk about the past. Big Rod's not here to talk about the past. Not, yeah. about the past. <laughs> All of these are good things. Um, no, what I actually love about Faden's beard is that the, the little, like, uh, bald spots that he's got down here actually kind of look like the curls around the hilt of his of his sword you know so you do kind of have like a nice little like uh you Incredible. know he's, he's got a real rohan look to him yeah wow my god i think that one of the most exciting single th things i ever saw in a theater is the attack of the warg riders like i don't think i've ever been so pumped as a mm. child in a movie theater as i was right then and i you know today the CGI, I think, looks okay, but I think it was just a reminder that the just the staging of these things is always so good, and you can get away with a lot of you if you just have them come so far over a hill from Legolas's perspective and just kind of pouring at that over the hillside at that distance. Um, and the fact that the CGI is all taken place on real striking landscape will help it forever and ever and ever i think it's kind of that jurassic park syndrome where if like the setting is also really really cool the yeah. the cgi like works so much better 
Um, but yeah, and I, I think Jackson's such a genius too, like especially in that sequence, like where to place the camera, you know, like so many of the shots in that sequence are like a super close up shot of Aragorn being unable to get his like watch off of like the leather strap on the side of the, <laughs> the, the rider there. And it's like, that's such a, you think of that scene as such a large spectacular thing, but there are actually that very few sort of like wide CGI shots. I think the Nazgul design, uh, you know, in 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 some ways he almost is a victim by how good it is in the first movie because that's so frightening. And, and some of it's some of the cinematic stuff that you're talking about, right? We're only seeing a hoof or a bit or a mouth or like a, a spiky boot. And we're like, what the hell is this thing, you know? And that by the time we get to the second movie, we're seeing like a full-scale flying Nazgul and it's it's loud and it's intimidating. And I, I buy that the people who are in this space are frightened by it, whether that's Frodo and Sam crossing the marshes or, you know, the, the fight in Osgiliath, but I think they're just cinematically so much more frightening in that first movie because because of some of the economy of filming um, and because of just a, a real sense of like, let that dread just kind of flow over to us. You know, I think a, a real big black horse is much scarier than like a flying winged thing. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do think the Warg Rider scene is is like very exciting, is cool action at like a time when we kind of need it, you know, um, in a movie that is essentially building up to one big giant action set piece, you know, we need to have some of those moments that kind of like remind us what we're kind of looking towards and what's kind of coming up there. Um, I, I do think it's kind of fascinating story-wise that like that's where Aragorn gets like pretty much killed you know like he survives and he lives on but like you know we have this kind of king character who expects to like if he's going to die it's going to be in some big grand royal battle and here it's like ah no it's actually just like some scrub who outfoxed him and yeah that could have been it you know Taken the, out the by return a of the king could have never happened <laughs> giant guinea pig yeah i agree with you brent about the nazgul design in the first one and it's in two towers we go the other way it's you finally get the 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 wet uh, bigatures, the the giant. Uh, well, they're they're huge for models, but they're smaller than Helm's Deep <laughs> would be, of course. Um, which are amazing if you watch some of the featurettes about those. Um, and then just yeah, the I was trying I was trying to think of the list of movies where like massive kind of organismic army combat is this interesting, where you see thousands of people, whether they're extras or CGI, kind of moving at once, and you're like, holy shit and it's really not that many all i could really think of is like spartacus and john Wu has this movie called red cliff which is like a ch ancient chinese epic um but yeah the, the fact that over and over again uh, you like see the size of the army and you're just like that's the coolest thing i've ever seen look at the rank and file <laughs> i i don't know how he gets it to be so cool but it's just total mastery of scale what i like about this movie sort of writ large here is it's a lot of what you're talking about, both of you. Uh, the idea that it it's not afraid to get a bit darker, uh, you know, seeing these kind of moments of like, oh, we can maybe almost kill a character or like the, the people that we're fighting are truly, truly gross and like covered with a sort of a mucus. And I even think like there's something kind of funny about Helm's Deep like as that set piece too where you know that's their refuge but it's like kind of icky you know it's it, it has the strength but it also like you know there, that there's something fascinating about the production design to also see like where you know rudimentary repairs have like been made on short notice where there's like you know brick replacing what was probably damaged in another battle or something and that really kind of like takes us deeper into that layer of like 
we're fighting over the ruins of this place. Like, just thank God we've got Helm's Deep. Uh, but, you know, we wouldn't be able to stand a chance if not for this, like, sort of ridiculous inheritance that we'd gotten from, you know, the wealth and, uh, you know, fear for security of a previous, you know, administration, a previous dynasty here. Uh, so that's what I kind of find fascinating as we're pulling back out into just like what this world is made of and just like the bluster of all these, you know, sort of political characters at the center of making these decisions. Like, I don't know, that's what tickles me a little bit more, um, you know, than what you two or Gaga over and fellowship i don't know if you know this noah but characters die and almost die in fellowship as well and there are gross urukai in fellowship as well so that's tough for me to understand what you're gaga for i like like there's something really dark about the fact that like what brings down helms deep is like this this like infrastructure problem and also like a pretty aggressive like suicide bomb you know kind of kind of thing on the on the other side so it's that's true it's a very but that's the kind of nuance that i think this movie plays around with a bit more is that like up oh, now we're top end of pg13 yeah lurts is lurts does get his head cut off in the I don't want to take that much issue with what you're saying. You're allowed to like this movie more. That's fine. It's very, very good. Um, uh, let's talk about Gollum. We have to talk about Gollum. Um, I think he still looks amazing. The thing, the thing that I love in retrospect is he's sort of posited as like this kind of like trickster character, and that's what Sam keeps saying is like you can't trust him. You can't trust him. But the movie so lays bare. His psychology is almost like something I took for granted is like my introduction to him is when, and it allows Andy Serkis to play completely manic and split personalities, of course, but when he delivers a line like, yeah, good Smeagol, Smeagol always helps, like you look at him and you're like, oh shit, he really believes this, Um, which I think is a fascinating way to approach um, a great character who honestly, I don't know if... Gollum had any right to be this good, frankly. Yeah, I think Gollum's like an iconic character from this, but I mean, you know, obviously when this movie comes out, he becomes part of the cultural zeitgeist, you know? I mean, you got you got Ted Cruz out there saying, my precious, you know, when he's talking about the Constitution, you know, this is like a, <laughs> Gollum is out there, you know, that's this, this a real thing. I, I wish that was like not, that was not that. real. There's super cuts of him just saying it over and over again. Oh yeah, it's there. It's, it's a bad world, but the Middle Earth is much better. Um, you know, I, ultimately, I think Gollum is made amazing because of Andy Serkis's performance because of what visually they're able to do with it. Um, But also, you know, that storytelling, you know, when we see him get like slapped around in the forbidden pool, we have to feel bad for him. You know, we have to feel like this sense that like, oh no, he he doesn't deserve this treatment. He was misled. He was lied to and tricked. And, you know, if we don't ever sympathize with him, the movie loses all of its tension. And and I, we really need this to set up the, the betrayal that comes in return. So I think, you know, the the steady building of that alliance between Frodo and Sam, or excuse me, between Frodo and, and Gollum is so um, steady, you know, that they don't wait until that third movie to be like, oh, by the way, these two are friends, you know? Um, and, you know, they have that great moment in the, at, the, at the water where Sam's like, Frodo, I'm trying to help you. And Frodo's like, you don't know anything about me. Like he, he, he's having a hard time, you know, and I think that, that, um, tension between the two of them gives them somewhere to go from 
what we've established in fellowship are, okay, best friends willing to do anything, you know, that kind of camaraderie that's there and, and willing to sacrifice anything that like there, there could be a limit to that. And, um, you know, I think we need a movie to kind of build that before we kind of see that limit really tested. But I think the, the Gollum stuff is, is iconic. It's incredible. Um, I, I will never forget seeing this trailer for the first time and like just hearing that Gollum voice and being like, that's it. That that's acting. That's, that's, that's it. You have, you have nailed this character who, you know, I've known in my head for years, but now I can see him and hear him and he's, he's real. He's right there with Elijah Wood. Two points of interest here. One, Bran, are you going to, this is right, right? That you have played Gollum. Yeah, this is true. In, uh, in good old 2003, uh, as an eighth grader, I was in a community theater production of The Hobbit. I, I did play Gollum in that, and uh, it was the pinnacle of my theatrical career. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was also the height of that haircut that you sported in early high school, which was sort of very Smeagol-esque. Smeagol-esque? Whoa. I, 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 don't, I, I don't think that's fair. Well, not not Gollum, but like... Go- Smeagol doesn't have hair. Oh, you mean like pre-rot Smeagol? Yeah, like pre-rot. Well, maybe like okay. a couple days in the cave. Like it was these, these sort of tendrils that came off of you. So I'm like being thrown out of town, like landing in the rocks, being like, <laughs> that's what it looked like. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good to know. Good to know. Point of interest number two. Um, I don't know. I, I, I was trying to text you about this, Brett, the other night, but, and you weren't having it, but I'm going to, I'm going to sort of uh, die on the hill of, I think Smeagol, I mean, this is spoiler for the third one here, but Smeagol seems like I think he's he's like a kind of a ne'er do well from way back and kind of like, you know, if the if the the guys from Mississippi grind had gotten their hands on like uh, the one ring, they would have also like gone down a similar path of like, you know, sort of murder and, and selfishness and kind of like trickery and, you know, et cetera. Well, I think kind of the, the premise is that it would have happened to anybody. You know, the fact that Frodo is... I don't see that. That's what I'm saying. Room. Oh, I would okay, agree well, with... I guess I would agree with Noah about this. You don't... Th- Smeagol doesn't seem like a pretty shifty-ass character, so it impacts him Smeagol, even more so. In Return of I the King... The, I get the ring could corrupt anyone, but yeah, Smeagol seems a little uh, fishy from the beginning. He's like if the guy from so Red juicy, Rocket sweet. got a... You know... Uh, is that a reference that's not appreciated? Simon Rex, Red Rocket, we got it. Yeah, like that dick, that dick guy. <laughs> I don't know. I, I you know, and I, I get that like he's, you know, not a hero, but I, I think we get the impression early on, and, and that opening scene in return really just shows him as kind of like a, a simple person, like like at a in a if this whole story is pre-modern, that it's even more pre than that. Um, look, I don't I don't think he was ever gonna be like, Yeah, I'll take the ring to Mordor, right? I mean I I am sure it probably exacerbated some greed that he clearly already had. Um, but why didn't but, it exacerbate that for Bilbo or Frodo? I mean, I think that's that's part of the story is that it's their resilience to the ring. Gandalf even makes a note that he's surprised that, like, he is not affected by it. He was surprised by Bilbo not being affected by it, which is why for so long he didn't but even realize that Bilbo was in possession of the ring. My argument, like kind of like Sean Bean, who, like, falls for it a little bit, too, like, these are baseline kind of like not that great of guys. And the 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 speed with which the ring can take you has to do with your like sort of underlying personality master's my friend you don't have any friends 
Nobody likes you. Not listening. Not listening. You're a liar. And a thief. No. Helm's Deep, though, I think the best battle of all three movies. I do think it's great. I think um, in terms of combat, I think it's really interesting combat. There's some like eye rolly stuff that like, you know, I, I can Legolas I can going imagine. down the stairs on the shield. Yeah. The, the skateboard shield with the uh, with that's the, for the, the little boys like, like us who are watching it. And they're like, wow, I'm going to wow, do that. I can be Legolas. I'm going to learn how to skateboard. And I'm going to see I'm going to see all the content that Orlando Bloom's in. <laughs> He's just like me. For a period. And I think, too, Jackson's ability to kind of navigate the tension of a battle is so much better in Helm's Deep. Like the, you know, when you have Bernard Hill being like, is that all you got, Saruman? And it's like, obviously, you shouldn't say that. You know, because then it'll, it's, cause, but it's these like, these, these, you know, rewards and these expectations that are set up when like people think that they have the upper hand and they really don't. And I think this one plays with that so well that, you know, at the end of Home's Deep, even though they've like won, maybe, uh, it's, it's still like the losses are so severe that it's almost like net sum. Theoden is the king of celebrating at the end of the third quarter. Doesn't he yell, victory, we have victory, right before the witch king takes him down? <laughs> I mean, he does totally. it again. Totally. He, yeah, he loves making an early call. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think uh, there's like, there's somewhere there's like a Theoden with like a mission accomplished sign behind Absolutely. him. Absolutely. You know, that's, yeah. Oh, no, man. Let's get to a rating. Is Two Towers your favorite of the three films? Two Towers is my favorite of the three films. Uh, love those Ents. I know some people aren't there for the Ents, but I... I the because that's also Jonathan Rhys-Davies, and I think it's incredible that uh, a movie is so nice that they had Jonathan Rhys-Davies twice. Well, and that's actually what... that The Ents are not CGI. That is the allergic reaction to his Gimli makeup. That's what he looked like at the end. Yeah, they killed two <laughs> birds with one stone. While he, they waited for him to turn not green... Uh, strapped him up to a CGI thing and had him talk to Marion Pippin for whatever. Oh, you know what's so satisfying, like in kind of a you know like a TikTok or Instagram video kind of way, is the uh, water kind of just absolutely cheesing Isengard and like putting out like the really gross fire and really just kind of undoing the ick pit. Uh, I found that to be just, I mean, story, sure, but like just aesthetically pleasing. It's always fun to watch that one ant dunk his firehead in the river. Yes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> relief, sweet relief. Um, yeah, I mean, I, look, I think the, the the last march of the Ents is like such an exciting and 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 powerful scene. Uh, you know, you got great uh, Howard Shore music underneath Dun. and all that. I think that's one of those moments where the the kind of the, Timing the climax of Helm's Deep and that kind of simultaneously is is a real strength of the movie. You know that we kind of get that that last march of the ends, and then we get the the you know the uh, approaching of uh, Aomer and Gandalf. You know, I think that's like such a beautiful little balance there that really does like wrap up these disparate stories in a way that is satisfying and fulfilling um, and just really cool looking. You know, I, I think like we've just seen a whole movie of a siege and now we get this whole new siege and it's somehow still interesting and worth watching. You know, that's, that's, that's bananas to me, you know, that they can, that, that, that Jackson's able to accomplish that. 
good good for you as well it is good good for me um you know i i think i think it's my second favorite behind fellowship um if i'm kind of looking at movies as a whole um you know when i break it down by disc i do think uh the second half of this movie is stronger than the first half um you know uh, partly a lot of that's helms deep stuff um but i also think like the frodo stuff gets a lot more interesting once faramir's involved once they um can kind of play a little bit with with more of the kind of the power question and and um kind of setting up some of the stuff in return so again i do think two towers absolutely incredible very very good but um still for me not not quite as tight as fellowship yeah, I think it's good, good, too, for all the reasons you guys have said. If anyone wants to hear my letterbox ratings, which they absolutely don't, the scale that we're working on is Fellowship's 5 out of 5, and this is 4.5 out of 5. Like, it's fucking great. Yeah, um, very good. And it's Gimli burping that loses at the half star. I will say that again. <laughs> so many good iconic lines in this one, too. You're yeah, going to have to toss me. Uh, don't tell the elf. Uh, nope. I feel like Brent, the one that you've used most in our friendship is meats back on the menu, boys. <laughs> in what context? Lunch? High school lunch? Usually when we're like ordering food or something. But really any context. I can put anything on the menu. I, I, literally, I use that phrase, no lie, like every three days in, in <laughs> reference to something. Somebody will be like, oh, I hope we get snow tomorrow. And I'll be like, oh, snow's back oh, on the snow's menu, boys. Back on the menu, boys. <laughs> Everything. Put it all back on the menu. All great. The eye of the enemy is moving. <sighs> the end has come. Every day, Frodo moves closer to Mordor. How do we know Frodo is alive? What does your heart tell you? Come, Master! Come to Smeagol! This is your test. Every path you have trod through wilderness, through war, has led to this road. Return of the King, 2003, Gandalf and Aragorn lead the world of men against Sauron's army to draw his gaze from Frodo and Sam as they approach Mount Doom with the One Ring. That was the worst synopsis of the three. We must do better than that, IMDb. It seemed to cover everything. It wasn't very snappy. It wasn't. It, It lacked the snap that I like. No commas at all. Now, do we talk about big stuff or do we jump right to another obscure character actor whose performance I'm obsessed over? Is it David Wenham? It is unfortunately John Noble as Denethor. <laughs> He's so good. He's so He's good. He's so good. Okay, actually, let's start here. Um, I do think he's very compelling and he sort of brings this uh, different energy where he's like willing to stand on ceremony to exercise his power and he's like massively sort of passive aggressive but he's clearly this sort of emperor nero archetype who's just like willing to let the you know he sees that doomsday all around but i actually wanted to ask you brent what is denethor's deal is he actually having kind of like apocalyptic visions or why is he so willing to go down with the ship 
Yeah, so his role, you know, in the greater political sense is steward. And so the stewards have existed ruling uh, Gondor and specifically through Minas Tirith since the days of the end of the king. And even the kings, um, before they were gone, had stewards that they basically would have kind of do, you know, what, what George R. R. Martin might call the hand of the king. You know, that they're kind of basically doing the king's duty and, and executing that vision. Like a Tony uh, so Blair? Once the... No. Uh, so once the... Uh... <laughs> So once the uh, the kings are gone, the stewards <laughs> the, the stewards at that point are just kind of full scale ruling Gondor, and so you know we've got that kind of tension of his kind of fear that a king is going to come in and you know ruin his political access to everything, uh, but also you know on a very personal psychological sense, um, he is dealing with the death of his wife, um, who dies uh, you know probably about six or seven years before this story starts. Um, he's grieving when by the time we meet him, we know he's grieving the loss of his eldest son, um, the one that he is. Uh, actually a fan of, uh, whereas he has oh very little God. love for his uh, uh, younger child, Faramir. Yes, I wish that. It's brutal. Oh, oh my Too gosh. dark. Yeah, uh, just... Yeah, it's heavy. It's heavy. Um, and, you know, and I think the other kind of component, too, is that he has access to the Palantir. Um, and so he has one of those seeing stones. He's been checking that out. He's been reading or kind of reading into that. Um, and so because of that, he believes that he has insight and information that other people don't have. And part of that's true, but also what he has seen has been deliberately manipulated by Sauron, by the enemy. And so um, he's kind of seeing all these visions of doom that that really exaggerate his view of the decay, of, of the hopelessness of, of humanity. Um, and so, you know, we talked about how decay is present, like, right at the beginning of this trilogy. Uh, but at this point, this was, this is our character who is, like, most bought into the idea that, like, no, we have no hope. There is nothing that's going to fix things. And actually, anything you think is going to fix it is actually only going to make it worse, um, you know, through things like Aragorn or, uh, you know, uh, trying to take the ring to Mordor, all of these kinds of ideas. So he is he is uh, our, our biggest nay sayer of, of the trilogy so far. Noah, where do you want to jump in with this one? It's the longest of the three. It's the most epic. It's the most award successful and financially successful. What jumps out to you in Return of the King? What is your favorite of like the three songs, uh, the credit songs of these three movies? God, if I didn't have a cold, I would burst into two of them right now. Uh, for me, it's... Is it going to be Into the West? No, it's Enya's May It Be from Fellowship. Incredible. Is it Annie Lennox's Into the West for you guys? I kind of like the the haunting reverence of... Uh, Gollum Song? Gollum Song uh, <laughs> in, the, in, in Two Towers. But I think okay. Into well, the West... Life. Yeah, that's it. But Into the West slaps, as they say. Into the West is incredible because you don't hear the Into the West theme until Return of the King. And and you get these little bits of it as it comes in, just kind of like sitting in the background. And it's just like, ooh, ooh, okay. Like, these are horns, but like, this is not Isengard horns. Like, those those are those are no orc horns, uh, as, as we well know. Uh, and so by the time we actually do get Annie Lennox in there, just like ripping it to pieces, I, I think it's incredible. I, I'm definitely an Into the West fan, like... 
like all day long. Uh, you know, the the extended version of this uh, does top four hours, but most of that, is, not most of that, but a, a, like a 30 minute chunk of it is credits. And I will always watch at least through the end of Into the West because it's so awesome. It feels so cumulative and is, uh, and Annie Lennox is just such a perfect, I think, voice for it. You know, it's, it's huge. It feels big. It feels fantastical. Huge fan of that. What can you see? I would argue Into the West saves Return of the King from having, like, several different medium endings. Um, it still has a ton of those, but you think Into the West is a, a good final note? Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. That, like, I don't know. Watching it this time, I, I remembered, you know, last time I saw it, which must have been college, high school, I don't know. Um, but feeling like sort of medium satisfied by the whole thing. But this one, it does feel like it doesn't, I don't know this watch. I felt like it, it doesn't know quite how it wants to end here, but then I'm distracted by the, the Annie Lennox of it all. Yeah. But I mean, people make fun of it for having eight endings all the time, but by the time we get to like Sam marrying Rosie, I'm like, like fuck okay. off. So it's, yeah. it's justifiably made fun of. Like, are you kidding? Like you could just end it on top of Minas Tirith where Aragorn says you bow Or obviously when the, the the boats are going off. Like, why do we then go back to the Shire again? To remind you that it is a story that knows it's a story. Yeah, I don't, doesn't need to. That, that perfect to book ending of like starting and ending in the Shire feels a little like, I don't know, it's a lot. You know, I do think, though, to to their credit, and, and again, I, th- I think these are valid criticism. Um, I will say there's really only 22 minutes between when the ring is destroyed and when that door closes at the end. Uh, that's that's one episode of Frasier. You know, I know you can do that, Noah. You know, 22 minutes, that's, that's not such a big Incredible. Deal. You um, have finally switched over to the Noah Ballard Frasier time metrics of my attention span. <laughs> Incredible. I knew um, it would catch yeah. on begrudgingly, but people are people are really coming to this chance. Wow. Right. There, there are dozens of us. Uh, but I, I do think, you know, the the coming back to conclude with Sam is because really these stories are about Sam. Like Frodo is like a protagonist in only like a very traditional sense. Uh, we are, you know, over his shoulder early in Fellowship. But I think like even by the time we get to the middle of Fellowship, like this is a story about like groups of people. Um, and then when that's not about groups of people and it's about pairs, Sam is the one who is more dynamic, more interesting, more compelling, um, you know. And, and so I think that like to end with him is to say that like, okay, stories don't end when people go off into the west but stories end when like that part leaves you and you still have to kind of move on i I, again some of this stuff i know is kind of obvious and maybe is like less interesting by the time you're at hour four of this movie but i i'm I'm glad it ends with sam you know i think there's there's something nice of that and um and and you get that i think that there's such that heartbreaking moment when he realizes that frodo is leaving as well that it's not just bilbo who's going and so that i think that that we get to see that sad goodbye but also the like the life going on for sam you know i i think I think he's deserved that at, you know, 12 hours into this uh, franchise. Yeah, I get I get that. I'm just a big fan of 
sort of like the creative limits of the three hour mark that like really forced the, the, you know, put Jackson in a slight box in the first two. And I think he responded brilliantly. And I think by, by this one, I don't know what the, I know they're all in the can. I don't necessarily know what the editing timeline is. So whether it's just the third one that gets to sprawl or the first two are so successful that he gets to have the extra half hour, I'm not sure, but there's just something, there's something not creatively like, placating about like everyone should hug everyone else goodbye and it's i don't i don't need to see that like you you can stop short of every last little thing happening i think you might be surprised how satisfying it still is the other thing i thought of with return of the king though is um these movies are constantly watched these days the way we watch them they're marathoned like crazy so but i don't think if, if you could put yourself back in the 2003 theatrical space if you're not on the fourth hour of sam and Gollum distrusting each other i think it would hit differently I, I would be curious to like wait two years and watch just return of the king and i probably wouldn't feel the same kind of wear that i did this time I think that makes sense. Uh, you know, I also think that the like the ending of this movie is not just the third act for this third movie, but it's the third act for the entire movie movie series. You know, and so it has third to conclude of uh, the third age of men. That's right. Um, so you know, it has to conclude so much um, more than it would if it uh, th- then more than Two Towers has to, more than Fellowship has to. You know, and so I think right. that that just by nature, you know, we have to kind of come back to that Shire, that, that opening piece, that those kinds of bookends that are there, um, you know, in, in the text, of course, there's, there's even more endings, you know, we, we have like a whole like mounted rebellion happening in the Shire when, you know, the four get back there and they have to take down Saruman, you know, and in the, right. and this is the other piece, the theatrical cut, we get no Saruman in that third movie. You know, he's just right. kind of like, okay, well, I guess the ends took care of him because they flooded everything around him. Um, whereas in that, 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 I think we get a really great scene in the uh, extended version where, you know, basically what's left of the fellowship does confront Saruman. That's how we get the Palantir. We see Wormtongue kind of take a moment of, of control into his own hands as he tries to stab Saruman himself. You know, I think there's uh, Gandalf breaks his staff. You know, I think there's a lot of cool stuff that happens in there that, again, if you don't need that, you don't need that. But if that brings some degree of conclusion from that tension between Gandalf and Saruman in that first movie, you know, I think there's, there's a benefit to that. Could I toss out the only plot line in any of these movies, like a full plot line that I think just doesn't work. I think it's the army of the dead. Mm. Um, and again, I, I don't know what the lore backdrop of that is, but I think in the, this movie, especially in the theatrical cut, which is the ones I engaged with, it just feels like it's teed up solely for a battle payoff later, it doesn't teach me anything about Aragorn being more willing to be kingly, even though I think maybe that's the purpose. Um, and it also, unfortunately, is just, I, I think of the large scale things, it looks the worst of it. It's a little Pirates of the Caribbean. I was going to say, it's a, it's a little flubbery when they're just kind of <laughs> spilling over the whole bigotry at the end. It's like, is that flubber climbing the seven layers of Minas Tirith? Well, I think it's tough, too, because the Oliphants also don't look very good in Return of the King. I think they look a lot better when we just see, like, one or two of them in two towers. And so, like, now all of a sudden when we have these, like, green goo of bad guys or good guys over the, like, gray goo of bad guys, you know, it just kind of is, it, it feels like 
we spent all this time building this tension and then was like, oh, well, we had to do this because this isn't really the big battle. So we have to end this before we can start the big battle. Um, so right. I, I agree. It's 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 narratively, it's not as exciting. Um, and visually, I mean, compared to some of the stuff we were talking about with Two Towers, the combat just feels lazy. It's, it's just like not exciting. You know, um, the siege is a little cooler because we get to see more of like, okay, what's Minas Tirith look like as it's getting like destroyed and things like that. But the Army of the Dead really just kind of feels like, okay, and then we wipe and start over. There's a hint of I just saw this with with Return of the King, and again that you maybe wouldn't feel that way if you gave it some time. But no, how, how do you feel about this movie? Well, if, if we're talking about nitpicks here, maybe this is a, an opportune time to talk about uh, that there are no women in any of these movies, uh, which this movie kind of realizes, you know, when it then employs sort of an Eowyn Mulan kind of moment is that is that book accurate brett can you speak to that D- does eowyn disguise herself as a man and defeat the witch king of agmar yeah that is correct through a, through a technicality that no man can defeat him and she is in fact i mean she man. really does lean on that you look upon like, a woman yeah on that on that sort of technical goof in the contract uh, of how to kill a nazgul yeah yeah yeah, and, and it, you know, look, I think these all three of these movies have a woman problem, um, and, like, the fact that the performances are anything is, like, kind of amazing. I think Miranda Otto is, like, really swinging for it. Um, I think Liv Tyler doesn't have as much to work with, um, and, and, you know, obviously you've got Kate Blanchett as Galadriel, so, you know, you can't blame it on casting. Um, I think it's just, you know, the source material had almost nothing, and then there was so much kind of plot stuff that I think it was like, oh, well, how do we add in extra? You know, some of the deleted scenes are deleted scenes with uh, with Eowyn and Faramir kind of in the garden when everybody's out in that fight, which actually I think is a really compelling scene, but it's tricky because, again, like any female characters we do have are largely relegated to kind of romantic, um, childbearing responsibilities. They don't pass the Bechdel test. No, no, definitely not. Yeah, that does scream out, uh, I would say, in these movies. Uh, yeah, and then it does feel like the ways they try to, like Miranda Otto sort of like throwing herself at, at Vigo in the second one and then sort of replaced by that and uh, Faramir in, the, in Return of the King. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird expectation to set. Uh, I, I understand it's not source accurate, but it seems like there will be a, a sizable reaction to that in iterations of this going forward. It's hard to watch her get friend zoned and patriarchy zoned at the same time. <laughs> well, and she has that thing where she's, you know, she's doing the sword craft into towers. And then I found myself being like, holy shit, it's another like three hours before she gets to do anything. Like she does the sword craft to, to prove that, what she fears most is a cage and that she's a free woman. And then she still just has to go in the mines or the, the back caves and we don't see her. It's tough. It's a tough go for Eowyn. I had forgotten too, that there's like that reference when, uh, Carl Urban's trying to freak out Brad Dorif on his way out the door. The, like that he like follows her around and is like kind of a stalker, uh, worm tongue. Too long. Have you haunted her steps? Too long. What is haunting one's steps? Mm. That should be like a legal term. Carl Urban's got some great his uh his charge face on the fields of Pelennor, great fucking face. You like Carl's He's face? He's ready I, to go. I love the Carl Urban line uh in in Two Towers when he just looks at Greenman and goes, "Well, mongering." <laughs> <laughs> mm. 
Perfect. He's so Two offended. Words, that's all you need. Oh, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's great. Uh, I just have this. I wish I wasn't kind of beaten down by it at the end, but I just sort of am. It's mm. just a lot of some good in this world, Mr. Frodo. We hear that like three speeches three times in a row. I I don't know what the I don't know what the it's very stupid to suppose that I could edit this better than Peter Jackson, but I almost like do maybe it's just can we do all the battle mechanics in the one battle? Do we do we just shorten up some of the Frodo and Sam stuff by not having the Mordor siege? I get that that's symbolically important. Um, okay, so some moments in Return of the King that I definitely love that to me, like, you know, are, are amazing because obviously it's such a big, robust, long movie. But some of these small little scenes, you know, when when they retreat out of Asgiliath and Gandalf just kind of shows up to just kind of like just flash a little bit of magic at that Nazgul. Yeah. What a beautiful, amazing wide shot where you really like get some sense of magic. But there's really and actually I think this is maybe a strength of the whole piece. Right. Um, for for as much as these movies are like world building and explaining and giving background and exposition, there's almost no interest in, like, the mechanics of magic. You know, yes. we are not concerned with power levels. We are not concerned with, like, oh, it's because this staff gives me this plus ability, and now in this final fight, I'll really use it. Like, none of that nonsense matters here. And I, I love that it's just, like, you know, the image of Gandalf, like, coming in is, like, just light. And, like, that's enough to kind of, like, scare away this darkness and, and give these guys some chance to, like, come back together. You know, I think, I think that's great because then they don't have to kind of re- cap or t- uh, top that for each movie to be like okay well this was the magic before wait till you see the magic they can use now when they're even more powerful or in their final final form right. you know I, I think that um that is really refreshing especially compared to i think a lot of the more modern um kind of fantasy stuff that we see i think the lesson is nothing good ever happens in a don't don't try to hold it don't try to definitely don't try to retake it um the editing in the retaking scene is amazing with uh the singing and um the the final chomp of the cherry tomato is just unbelievably placed and well timed. It's beautiful. Yeah, there's all kinds of great shit in Return of the King. It's just um, as Noah, you, you've said this from the beginning. Like if we're looking at these movies on a curve, um, or all relative to each other, this one um, is probably the the weakest for me. But if you guys want to shout anything else out before we before we close Samwise's book, I think to me like all these movies kind of have that like one really cool shot. That's just like unbelievable. The, the level of technical achievement. And for this one, you know, I think it is, uh, when the steward is on fire and he like runs out the courtyard and then kind of like falls into the mayhem of the city. Like that's, that's really great. Like, I think there's this one swooping pan over Helm's deep where it's like, that's the, you know, he, Jackson finds really elegant ways to do that money shot there, uh, you know, regardless of, of, you know, what the setting is. Uh, and I think that that makes the the overall view of this, like, if it's a little goofy on a narrative level, at least it's highly watchable. I think that that's what this one has going for it. It's just like a lot of a lot of very watchable sequences. I do agree with you, No, I think that, that some of Jackson's strength is when he is showing restraint and when he is kind of trying to be not necessarily smaller, but saying, okay, I'm just going to take one of these shots and not a hundred of them. The opposite of that, though, for me, is maybe the best sequence in this film, uh, the lighting of the beacons, which every single image is just like, that's my new desktop. No, 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 that's my new desktop. No, 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 that's my new desktop. <laughs> like, it's, it's just so huge and cool. And I mean, that's like, great, too, to, yeah. To, 
oh my gosh, it's such an exciting scene and sequence. Um, you know, obviously narratively because, you know, Rohan has kind of been a little bit pissy and Theoden is not really interested in, uh, you know, supporting the cause in that way. Um, and, and then, you know, you see Aragorn really just kind of camped out sitting there like waiting for that beacon. And then when that last one gets lit and he like, he books it. He's like, okay, let's do this. I, you know, I think that's just such a, an exciting sequence that, that, that has consequence. You know, I think maybe that's some of the tricky parts about the ending sequences is that like, they don't feel consequential. And some of that's just because they're endings. But I think it's also because like the best scenes in these movies, ha people have to deal with the ramifications of them. And whether that's like a ramification of, of unity and strength and, and fellowship, or whether that's a ramification of, you know, betrayal and like, oh, now I have to like walk my ass down these stairs because I just got tricked by Gollum again, you know? And so I think like all of those consequences, um, you know, in some of those really big shots, make them feel less gratuitous and more like, no, this is earned because of what it's going to set up moving forward. You know what moment really does it for me is, this is so easy, but I feel like it has, has to be shut out, uh, shouted out, is, is the Aragorn for Frodo. Like that, the whole, the it's like six hours of stuff building up to like this moment of, when push comes to shove, like fellowship is like what I'm, what I'm, what I, I, I care most about. And to finally see that proven, you know, to the ultimate or, or seemingly ultimate effect, uh, you know, that's, that's the litmus test. Yeah. And that's such a cool bookend to like the, that, that scene at the beginning of return where Aragorn's talking to Gandalf and Gandalf's like, you know, what do you think about Frodo? And, and Aragorn says, you know, what, what does your heart tell you? You know, that's a moment where it's like, okay, this is a guy who like was coming to Gandalf for help and advice and now is emerging as a leader, is somebody who's giving hope to even the wisest of, of characters that we encounter. You know, I think he's, he's it, it, there's some really cool character growth here that is subtle. You know, it's not quite as as drastic as obviously what Sam or Frodo go through. But I, I do think the, the Viggo Mortensen performance really sells that change from beginning to end. For Frodo. You know, we've shouted out this comparison a few times because of the natural connection to Game of Thrones, but Aragorn sort of charging, sprinting out by himself reminds me of uh, Jon Snow getting baited at the Battle of the Bastards, where that ends up being a terrible tactical decision for him to charge. And I, it's just something that highlights for me that um, Lord of the Rings is just so earnest. These films are just so earnest, and they just have like a real... Um, just a real innocence about them that I'm not sure we'll ever get back in mass entertainment. And there, there is something perhaps smarter or cleverer or more cunning about, um, you know, living inside people's strategic failure and whatnot. But um, just the the pure-hearted hero of the story being like, let's do this for the other pure-hearted hero of the story, and then running out ahead of the entire army and it being symphonically, holistically the right thing to do um that should be celebrated so thanks for bringing it up guys um i really can't give any of these movies anything but good good so i'm gonna yeah. give this one a good good as well even though it is my least favorite of the three i feel like i've obviously been leading up to giving this a bad good ah. in which i think that yeah the story's a little weaker than the other three uh, to your point, Chance, th there is a certain level of 
battle fatigue for lack of a better expression uh in just seeing this again and again uh, and then seeing it in the context of you know some of the other movies that were coming out at the time um and then it's it's yeah but i think moment to moment you know it it's it holds up as like a really satisfying and entertaining way to land the plane that is this juggernaut of american cinema and is ultimately a a good good like in the real world but in this 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 middle earth that we've created here uh that's how i feel yeah to me it's a it's a good good by by both of those standards you know i still think it's excellent and still highly enjoyable to watch uh you know it is my least favorite of these three um again when i break them down by disc for me it's fellowship disc one fellowship disc two uh two towers disc two return disc two Towers Disc 1, Return Disc 1. So I, I, you know, I do think that this is the weakest of them. But really, I think it's just because it's aged the most poor. It, it is aged poorly, I think, compared to the other two. Some of that CG, some of that storytelling. Um, uh, one last question I do just kind of want to ask you guys. Obviously, we, we touched briefly on the idea of like an Amazon series of this. Um, do you feel like if they had, uh, if these movies didn't exist in today's, you know, prestige television world um, of streaming, do you think these stories themselves would have translated to television um, or to some kind of like serial uh, production as opposed to something kind of singular and, and um, feature film style? Do you think there would be room for this today? Yes, for sure. Noah? Yeah, I mean, I think that the logical way to develop a story like this now would be through you know, uh, either a limited or a, a full season of television um yeah isn't part of what's so amazing about it is that by all rights they shouldn't have done it this way and it works so incredibly right i I mean i think that you know in terms of the consumption of media here like they kind of did invent the you know that that limited series thing where for three straight years they got people to like do a thing for four hours uh, right. So I, I think that's kind of proving the that like what's now available more readily on streaming uh, and some of these prestige cable channels, uh, you know, is something that people will enjoy. But I think, you know, figuring out like what would be because that, of course, was state of the art, you know, with the effects and the spectacle of it. So it, it would have to be figuring out how to get whatever kind of filmmaking is next, like at the fore of telling the story in a way that you'd have to see it in the theaters. Gentlemen, here we are at the end, I believe. But the, let's do another 45 minutes. Last thing I'll say, <laughs> isn't it fucking crazy that nobody like, if I was going to like, does anyone have anything to say about the Hobbit movies? All of us probably would be like, actually, no, I don't have one single thought about those i have nothing to say about those movies that has not already been said i think that's okay. that's really what it kind of comes down to all right can well, i we'll see bro- can i admit that i've never seen any of them never seen any of them no you're doing yourself a favor my friend they're not good the thing that makes me so mad about them is like these the, these are the movies you talk about there are such so masterfully condensed and the hobbit movies are like stalling they're stalling <laughs> to make more money. It's the worst feeling in the world. Um, anyway, uh, twenty years since uh, one of the, maybe the maybe the best film trilogy 
ever made? Are we prepared to say high minded things like that at the end of this? No. We're not. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. I, I wholeheartedly agree. I, I honestly think the only trilogy that comes even close in terms of like consistency is the before trilogy, that's which obviously is like I a was totally different. Say. Yeah, that's why I love oh, Chance. Yeah. Mm. That's right. What? Sorry, no. Are you talking about the idea? Ethan your... Hawke, Julie Delpy movies? Yeah. Yeah, the Richard Linklater before trilogy. Would you guys just like just shake clear all of your, uh, your preconceived notions? The two trilogies that you think of are being the best in cinema history are Lord of the Rings and the Julie Delpy, Richard Linklater, Ethan Hawke after before and after. I movies. believe my ex- I believe my exact phrasing was in terms of consistency across the trilogy. Yeah, like is total points Godfather right. trilogy going to win? Sure, but you you, you have to carry Godfather three. Right. No, thank you. And you have to you got to carry Ewoks. You got to carry <laughs> Sofia Coppola's acting. You don't have to carry yeah. shit in Lord of the Rings except for the Army of the Dead. <laughs> what about? No, what are you? What are you tossing out? You yeah, don't have any trilogy. real rebuttals to this. Uh, you're right. I'd have to give it more research. I just didn't think something so outrageous was going to be said. <laughs> well, there you have it. The best movie ever made. No. Um, <laughs> And thank you guys so much for having me on. I really, uh, really appreciate it. I always, always love being, uh, being on the podcast. And especially thank you for your patience with my technical stuff. So thanks for that. You're, you're truly our favorite pre-modern podcast guest. Thank you for, for being here. Uh, Noah? Sir? Happy to be a part of this fellowship always. Uh, we'll uh, I'll talk to you soon. I can't carry this podcast, Chance, but I can carry you. <laughs> <laughs>